Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Before we get started with today's show, I want to tell you guys about betonline.ag. The Pac-12 is dead as we know it. So this year's going to be your last chance to bet on the Pac-12 champion. Right now, Bet Online Sportsbook has USC as the favorite to win the conference at plus 200, Oregon coming in at plus 325, Washington plus 350, two-time defending champ Utah plus 500, Oregon State at plus 1,000. If you head to Bet Online Sportsbook today and use our promo code BLEAV, that's B-L-E-A-V. You can get a 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit using the link in the description to this episode. Bet online, where the game starts. Good. Morning, good evening, good afternoon, or good night. However, and whenever it is, you may be listening. Thank you for stopping into another fantabulous episode of the Take It Easy podcast live. On the Believe Podcast Network. Except it isn't live because it is, as always, a podcast. And podcasts aren't live. That's the whole purpose of podcasts. You can listen however and whenever you so choose. And we appreciate that you have decided to stop in however, whenever it is that you may be choosing. Happy, happy Thursday, everybody. It's a fantabulous Thursday, August 10th, according to my count. It may not be that according to your count, but we appreciate you stopping in, however and whenever it is that you may be listening. It's a Sports Radio Thursday once again here on the Take It Easy podcast. Our friend Juju Talk Sports and I got together, did some YouTube videos for the Slump Buster podcast channel. If you want to see our beautiful faces, there's a link in the description of this episode for Juju's Twitter and for the YouTube channel. If you want to see our beautiful faces live on the air, except it's not live because it's a podcast, but if you want to see us not live on YouTube, then you can enjoy the same podcast that you're listening to today. But Juju and I got together and talked about Jonathan Taylor and that funny story that happened last week, which I didn't really have a place to weave into this show. I mean, we were talking about last week the Oakland A's and the reverse boycott, and uh, then we earlier this week everything happened with the Pac-12, so I didn't really have a place to weave in the Jonathan Taylor story, so we might be like a week late to that story, but I feel like today's a good place to laugh at just how stupid the whole Jim say wanting to murder Jonathan Taylor and then commit a pack suicide situation, which is the only thing I can assume from that ridiculous Jim Irsay tweet. The ridiculous Jim Irsay tweet and the pro-management, anti-labor sympathies of the NFL fan and the NFL union being able to squash the... The NFL union, or the NFL owners being able to essentially squash the NFL union so that protests or holdouts effectively 
are removed. I mean, they're always going to find ways around it, and you're always going to find ways to try and use your pa- the power of your labor and find loopholes within the collective bargaining agreement. But the NFL, pl- the NFL owners have so much power over the players and power over the union that they've essentially broken all of the protests and holdouts of the last two years, including... Jonathan Taylor, including Saquon Barkley. If we're thinking back, um, Melvin Ingram with the Chargers did a hold in on hard knocks just because he couldn't afford to hold out while everything was going on with the Chargers. So, yeah, the NFL union has stiff penalties for holding out. They have all sorts of measures in place to prevent holdouts and squashing players who are upset. The franchise tag is a ridiculous concept that the NFL Players Association doesn't want to get away, go away because they don't want to make the concessions that are necessary to get rid of it. And so all of it leaves us feeling a little bit lost on what comes next for Jonathan Taylor and everything that's happening with the Indianapolis Colts and Jim Ursay, which we'll also have a conversation about just where Jim Ursay falls on like the scale of worst owners in the sport, but we've got that. And then we've got a conversation about Dak Prescott, about the Cowboys moving on from Kellen Moore, about Dak Prescott throwing a lot of interceptions last season and the offense that they ran being conducive to having a lot of interceptions because the Cowboys threw the ball like 48 times a game and Dak Prescott averaged 5,000 passing yards despite the fact he was kind of middle of the road in yards per completion. We'll talk about all of that coming up today. It's Juju Talk Sports joining the show for a wonderful Sports Radio Thursday. And we're going to start off talking about Jonathan Taylor and the Indianapolis Colts, and then we're going to work our way over to this story of Dak Prescott and the changing Cowboys offense. All right, guys. So we've been talking a lot about the drama at the running back position, a lot of turmoil, a lot of guys who want a bigger contract. The leading rusher from just a couple of years ago, Jonathan Taylor, um, is now demanding a trade. Uh, this is also sparked a little bit of a Twitter beef now with Jim Ursay, Colts owner Jim Ursay, who um, had a little bit of an interesting statement just last night as we're recording this. But he did also emphatically state the Colts have no intention to trade Jonathan Taylor, whether now or in October, closer to the NFL trade deadline. Uh, what do you make of what we're, we're seeing right now with this situation? And do you think it honestly goes anywhere? Well, we'll talk about the Jim Irsay statement in a little bit, because uh, that was uh, interesting to say the least. But in terms of the Jonathan Taylor case, it's kind of this limbo that a lot of NFL running backs have been in the last couple of years, which is, He is not getting a contract extension offer, and also they don't plan to trade him because they know that he's a valuable player. So what's the game plan going to be? He's going to play the last year of his contract. They're going to franchise tag him at the end of the season. If they negotiate a two-year extension for slightly more than the franchise tag value, good for Jonathan Taylor. And if not, they'll just tag him for one year maybe tag him a second year, pay him the two years, $25 million on the franchise tag. And then from there, whatever happens, happens. So running back position is one where people are willing to do this. You wouldn't necessarily mess around with this kind of talent or mess around with this kind of 
hiring of your top player on the team? Because Jonathan Taylor is one of the four most valuable players on the Indianapolis Colts. You wouldn't necessarily go around messing with that if it were, say, a quarterback or if it were, say, a star edge rusher, because you know the value that that player brings and you want to secure them to a long-term contract. And so I guess the explanation for why the Colts are doing this strategy with Jonathan Taylor is because they can and because three years from now, who knows what Jonathan Taylor is going to look like? Who knows what Jonathan Taylor is even going to look like this coming season playing for the Indianapolis Colts? So I guess the Colts are taking the wait and see approach instead of locking him up on a long term contract that could look less valuable within maybe even one year, which sucks for Jonathan Taylor and is kind of just a perfect encapsulation of everything that's happening to the running back position. And it's interesting to ask for a trade at this time because we also have another pending trade demand that went unanswered literally this offseason. Austin Eckler is just kind of in limbo. He demanded a trade, I want to say, like all the way start of the year, like March, February, something like that. And obviously that's just been straight up ignored. Now, this one with, again, the ongoing drama that's going on on social media between the Colts owner and Jonathan Taylor adds another dimension to it because for the most part, the Eckler Chargers situation has remained pretty quiet. Like it's, it's been in the background. We know Austin Eckler demanded a trade, but he hasn't really forced the issue. And we know like from monitoring like NBA trade situations that really it just comes down to like, how ugly does the star really want to make it? You know, if we have like a James Harden fat suit situation, like we had in Houston or any situation involving Kyrie Irving, Usually the team is just like, okay, I'm just done with this guy. I'm ready to move on. Hey, if Jonathan Taylor wants to legitimately sit out training camps, sit out games, make it as uncomfortable for the Colts as possible, he it's his right to do that. But the Colts also do have the leverage in the situation too, where they shouldn't feel the immediate need to trade him. The Colts this coming year too, like I don't know exactly how good they expect themselves to really be. So I don't know if they're really going to force the issue with you know a rookie quarterback sitting on the bench and Gardner Minshew currently uh, penned in to start, you know? So it, it's not like a win now situation where like if Jonathan Taylor does sit out games, they won't necessarily be as much in a panic as a, a, another team that right now would consider themselves playoff contenders. Yeah. And you hit it kind of on the head there, which is the leverage in this situation belongs to the Colts. The part I'll add is that it sucks that the leverage belongs to the Colts in this situation because they can just tell Jonathan Taylor to go piss off and play this one season where he'll then get franchise tag, or maybe he won't get franchise tag. Maybe Jonathan Taylor will rush for under a thousand yards and the Colts decide they're okay letting him walk in free agency. Like whatever ends up happening, the Colts are saying, we don't want to commit long-term to this running back. Jonathan Taylor's saying, I kind of want to get paid before I end up getting injured, before my play declines, my value's at its highest, and this is the first opportunity I have to negotiate a contract extension. Because for those who don't know, in the NFL, you can negotiate after three years on a contract extension. First round picks get a fifth year option on their contract. Jonathan Taylor's a former second round pick, so he doesn't have a fifth year option on his contract. And that works better for him because he's one year closer to getting on that franchise tag, but it doesn't work well for him in the sense that the Indianapolis Colts have all the leverage in this situation. They can afford to let him sit out and they can afford to franchise tag him the same way we talked about last week with Saquon Barkley and with Josh Jacobs and with Tony Pollard, different running backs are in different situations and 
Jonathan Taylor is one of those guys who wants to secure the long-term money now because of the possibility that the long-term money won't be there in the future. We saw this last offseason with Kyler Murray and the Arizona Cardinals. The only difference was Kyler Murray is a franchise Pro Bowl quarterback. Meanwhile, Jonathan Taylor is a franchise Pro Bowl running back, and therefore the leverage in the situation changes dramatically. Because when Kyler Murray is threatening to hold out and skipping OTAs, that's a big story for the Arizona Cardinals. When it's Jonathan Taylor doing it, the Indianapolis Colts can afford to tell him to piss off because you're Jonathan Taylor and we might trade you, we might not trade you, but we can find another one of you somewhere down the road or at least replicate value in terms of getting less production but for less money at the running back position. That's basically the key difference there. And like you said, you can make it ugly, you can make it not ugly. Jim Ursay kind of jumped the gun on like, you can't possibly be crazier than me, no matter how ugly you want to make this situation. You can't be crazier than me. All right, let's hold up. Let me read the statement and then we'll get into it. Uh, So this is what Jim Ursay tweeted out. If I die tonight and Jonathan Taylor is out of the league, no one's going to miss us. The league goes on. We know that the NFL rolls on. It doesn't matter who comes and who goes. It's a privilege to be a part of it. So, yeah, we were talking about this in a group chat last night. Have at it. I know you have some thoughts on it. And like I said, it does make this whole situation a little bit uglier than it probably needed to be. No, my problem is that I I can't generate meaningful thoughts on it because I just I don't understand what the hell he's trying to say. (laughs) I, I just I can't make sense of what this tweet means. First of all, the one joke that I thought of is this sounds like Skip Bayless after the whole DeMar Hamlin situation. Basically, that seems like the response you're getting from Jim Ursay here is if I die tonight and Jonathan Taylor is out of the league, which I can only presume he wanted to say if both of us die tonight and then thought better of it because that's a dramatic change. If he dies, but Jonathan Taylor is no longer in the NFL, that's a pretty dramatic difference there. So that now, part doesn't make sense. Now, I like to play devil's advocate with this one. So I again, I can make sense of the statement. I can understand the sentiment behind it. It's a matter of being like grateful for the opportunities you get. And as far as the, if I die tonight and Jonathan Taylor is out of the league, again, why I can make sense of it? Because it's not a factually untrue statement, like in the sense, like, yeah, if let's say Jim Irsay dropped dead tomorrow and Jonathan Taylor retired for unknown reason, the NFL would still roll on. So it is actually still technically based in reality. So that's why I can make at least sense of it. It's just a matter of do you agree with the sentiment behind the tweet? But here's the thing, like maybe you could argue he wasn't talking about the Jonathan Taylor thing, but then why would why would he put this tweet out? Like it doesn't even have well, anything he mentions to do. It by name. So, you yeah. know, it, it's implied that it is about this con- current dispute that they're in with their contract. But, but he doesn't even have anything to do with the actual contract dispute itself. It's just saying, well, neither of us actually matter in the grand scheme of things. And all of this is just bullshit. Like I, I, this is the thing I like. Maybe I don't he even was know having an existential I, crisis, man. You know, who knows? Jim Mercy is kind of a wild dude. Maybe he took some mushrooms, <laughs> got on Twitter, and this is what came out. But but that's my problem is I can't even like be critical or even laugh at it. I just can't even understand what the hell he's saying. I, I don't see, understand. Is he see, the pr- if, thing? Like, is, if yes, you're Ballard, the league does go on. Yeah. If you're Ballard, <laughs> it doesn't matter what he's saying. You're just like, why'd you tweet this dude? Why? 
like now you know that kind of like lose a little leverage in this situation again i still think the colts have leverage but it feels like they lose a little leverage whenever it's like the agent can point to this tweet and just say like i'm in a environment or i'm in a workplace where i just don't feel comfortable but it's so unnecessary and that's the part where i just i don't understand it is like Okay, so you're saying that it's a privilege to exist in the NFL. That part's the only thing that's clear at the end. But everything you said before that has nothing to do with being in the NFL. See, what it reminds me of is actually kind of closer to the Kirk Cousins statement from a couple years ago. If I die, I die during the COVID thing. That's what it kind of reminds me of. I guess, but again, this is a, this is like, okay, so this is a classic. I'm going to try and make sense of this. And I hate that I'm going to try and make sense of this shit because I haven't been able to in the last 12 hours since it came out. So, okay, this is an argument between the ownership class and the working class in the NFL. And so his argument is all of us could die and none of it matters anyways. That's, Again, I don't understand that. Untrue, <laughs> you know. But that has, but again, that has nothing to do with the, that. Doesn't make any sense. It's like, okay, the we're guy, talking about the guy labor dispute. Checked out Neil deGrasse Tyson, and this is what popped out. <laughs> he was talking about black holes or multiverse theory, and suddenly Jim Mercer just felt the need to tweet. But this is supposed to be like economics, not like science and multiverse shit. Like this is <laughs> this is a labor dispute. That, look, all of it is just ridiculous. And yeah. you know it's bad when he had to send out a clarification tweet to, or sorry, a clarification text to Tom Pelissero after the fact. I think it was Tom Pelissero. He had to send yeah. out a clear oh Albert Breer. No, it was Albert Breer. He had to send out a clarification text to Albert Breer because nobody could understand what the fuck he was saying by this ridiculous tweet <laughs> and if anything you would say the second tweet is probably the most important tweet because it gives us more of a definitive statement on where this like negotiation is you know we've had this discussion a little bit in the past before about Jim say is like why doesn't he really get talked about as like one of the worst owners in the league because you know obviously you know you have Peyton Manning there you have Andrew Luck for years and ultimately you just walk away with the one title and then we have the chaos that they currently have with the five quarterbacks, six quarterbacks, six years situation. He just seems very easy to change his mind on guys or sour on guys pretty quick. The fact that he so publicly disparaged Carson Wentz after that week 18 game consistently, the guy's still talking about it. We talked about it in our Carson Wentz video about how Jim Ursay still talking about Carson Wentz and can't get over it. So, you know, it, it's, it's like Jim Ursay is kind of like an underrated worst owner in the league as far as like, um, where we rank him. I think when most people think about like bad owners, like uh, obviously Dan Snyder, who's out of the league or like Jerry Jones, who's very vocal, but Jim Irsay is just as vocal as Jerry Jones without necessarily the success, because you would still count what Jerry Jones did in the nineties, even though it was so long ago. Jim Irsay didn't start getting meddlesome until about like five years ago. I want to say like that was kind of the first time we started thinking of meddlesome Jim Irsay. And the reason we didn't think of him as a bad owner before is because one compared to his father, Bob Irsay, who was the famously the guy who said he wasn't going to move the Baltimore Colts out of Baltimore and then drove them to Indianapolis in the middle of the night to avoid like 
the organization being seized by the state of Maryland as part of legal disputes. And then him just being an absolute kook and the Colts being misran for years, building a field with AstroTurf that just destroyed people's knees. Like compared to his father, Jim Ursay is a good owner, but that's again, a low bar to hit because his father used to be one of the worst owners in the NFL. And like you said, they won a Super Bowl with Peyton Manning. They were one of the two best teams in the NFL during the second boom or the second wave of the NFL, which is the Tom Brady, Peyton Manning era of the 2000s, which is when football goes from being America's most popular sport to being the king sport in America because of those Tom Brady, Peyton Manning battles and everything the league did with Drew Brees oh, yeah. and Roethlisberger. And, and I, I think that's where the reputation preceded himself. That's why I know like Colts fans in New Mexico. Why would a NFL fan in New Mexico be a Colts fan? Only because of that, like early 2000s, mid 2000s success of the Indianapolis Colts driven by Peyton mm-hmm. Manning. But like if you've been a Colts fan in recent history, it hasn't been as fun. <laughs> you know, in fact, uh, it's been one I of the more chaotic yeah. fanhoods in recent memory. I mean, maybe you've had a couple playoff runs mixed in there, but now you're really on the downslide, the backslide of that. I mean, having to see Matt Ryan just out there last year had to just really steal your heart away from you. Yeah. And the Colts are in this interesting position because organizationally, Jim Ursay still regarded as one of the better owners in the NFL. The thing that kind of changed the last couple of years is he didn't trust the didn't fully trust the people who he had hired to to be in the coaching positions or even the general manager position. I know Ballard's still there, but he got meddlesome after Frank Reich pounded his fists on the table for Carson Wentz. And I felt like that was kind of the turning point where Ursay's like, this guy's a moron. I'm going to get involved in personnel decisions and I'm going to get involved here and I'm going to tweet out, should we draft a quarterback in the second round, despite the fact that we just drafted <laughs> Anthony Richardson at the top of the draft. And yeah, I mean, Jim Ursay's a complicated yeah. fellow, I would say. He's also been through a whole bunch of scandal in his time as ownership. He joked about the psychedelics thing. He got busted for having a bunch of pills in his car and got busted for alcohol is had to go through like like alcohol rehabilitation program with the league jim ursay has been through some of that stuff publicly as well so i'll put it he's more brash on it if we were to have a bad owner's draft right now how far down would we get before we got to jim ursay i'll start mark davis uh bidwell with the cardinals he'll be in there Ooh, okay okay um i would go jerry jones at three uh, I don't I don't think so. Jerry Jones just decided 20 years ago that he would rather make money than win football games. And I can't necessarily fault him for that because it is tempting to want to make a lot of money. But maybe you could argue that sacrificing the chance to dominate the NFL in exchange for guaranteeing revenue is uh is a bad thing. But well, I I said the Cardinals one off the top of my head, but Dean Spanos with the Chargers, number one with Ooh. a vil- with a with a vilification, deep dark hatred for Dean Spanos. I feel like Tepper right now with the Panthers is starting to creep up my list. I think I might draft him with my third pick. Okay. Trying to think off the top of my head because I'm going through like the old, I, I guess I would kind of say the Texans, but even the Texans had good uh, scores on the PA report cards. I'm just looking up real quick. So the Colts finished 16th out of 32 on the NFL PA report cards that came out this last year. So it seems like they're kind of middle of the pack in terms of spending money and providing facilities for the teams, the treatment 
assessment of players within the organization. It seems like they're kind of middle of the pack. I remember the if by the way, if I were to make a third pick, I would go with uh, the guy who reused jock straps. Uh, that would be the Brown family of the Cincinnati Bengals. They would be uh, they would be up there on the list. That's a real story. They reused jock straps in the 2000s. So I will take one. that team. I see. I think I think you're going to be the person who picks Ursay first because I don't think of Ursay as one of the worst worst owners in the NFL. He's just had a rough couple okay. of years where he's gotten meddlesome. You know, if I was to like continue to go down the list, like if you weren't going to mention them, I would probably throw them in there first before Ursay. Like perhaps Lions ownership, maybe Bears ownership, uh, the Cleveland Browns, sure, certainly too. Oh you know, yeah, they they would Jacksonville. Yeah, Shad Khan, you know has not really had a great reputation. Uh, now he might get saved by the virtues of Trevor Lawrence being part of his organization. But aside from that, you know, <laughs> like uh, it's not, hasn't been smooth sailings. And even if you look at like his soccer team, who's constantly getting relegated to like the cons too. So, okay. Maybe, you know, we're exaggerating a bit. Maybe he's not in the top 10. Well, we just like, listed we really 10. About? So yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like those, those are probably the 10 right there. This actually might be a fun conversation to revisit, but Ultimately, what do you think of how this thing shakes out? Is Jonathan Taylor still a Colt in the 2023 season? Yeah, it just it comes down to how ugly Jonathan Taylor wants to make it. And even if he makes it ugly, I don't think Jonathan Taylor has the support to be able to make it ugly. Support from the organization that they want to commit to him long term. And this is just a contract dispute. Because remember when it was Dak Prescott? They went through the franchise tag, but Jerry Jones said the whole way through, we are going to extend Dak. We are going to extend Dak. We're going to extend Dak. And then he broke his leg and they still extended Dak Prescott. So like, this is not a situation like that where he has the support of the organization. I don't know if he has the support of the locker room with the Colts, just because I haven't heard any of the people talk about the contract dispute, whether it's uh leaders in the locker room or quentin nelson or star players i just haven't heard anyone talk about it and then he doesn't really have public support either because everyone's looking at the running back negotiations and seeing all the running backs who are pissed off about how things are working out and i don't i see a lot of people saying it's messed up but i don't see a whole lot of people like who would be backing Josh Jacobs, who's about to hold out from the Raiders right now. They'd be I, like, how are you going to turn down $11 million and all we, that stuff? So I don't think we just saw Saquon cave, you know, in a world where Saquon just caved. And I think Saquon is a better player than Jonathan Taylor. I can't see Jonathan <laughs> yeah. Taylor winning this. The, the, the thing that I've said consistently instead of like semantics of running backs is like, Josh Jacobs, Saquon Barkley, Jonathan Taylor, and Austin Eckler, and even throwing Tony Pollard. We'll throw Tony Pollard in here too. That's five of the 10 best running backs in the NFL, maybe even five of the eight best running backs in the NFL at this point. That's a pretty significant group of your best players at the position who are all not going to get extended on contracts. So I don't think Jonathan Taylor has the organizational support to hold out, which I know sounds ironic when you're talking about holding out and fighting against your organization, but he's really fighting against you know a contract dispute it's not really the organization's fault it's more the contract dispute that's going on he doesn't have the organizational support i don't know if he has the locker room support to pull something that gets ugly and i don't know if he has public support from colts fans or just nfl fans at large because nfl fans lean pro management more than they lean pro labor so i yeah i don't think jonathan taylor is going to be able to pull this one off and uh similar to austin eckler i think he's going to have to be quietly unhappy going into next season uh waiting for 
the season to end and either he plays well enough to get a one-year franchise tag with the Colts or he doesn't play well enough and he has to settle for uh, what Miles Sanders got with the Carolina Panthers potentially, which is $20 million to go play for a crappy football team. <laughs> you know, it's funny in that bad owner's draft. Like if you asked me five years ago, I might have thrown in Jed York. I might have thrown him under yeah. the bus. <laughs> I think that's totally fair. I'll also, I didn't even mention the Texans guy who uh, Cal McNair, the son of Bob McNair, who was a terrible owner, who literally had a team pastor running his football team for the last three years. So the Texans, the Cardinals, I mean, we listed 11 off the bat right there that are probably worse than Jim Ursay. And I think the NFL PA report cards kind of support the fact Jim Ursay is kind of like right in the middle. He's, He's not a great list, owner. Though. If we start getting into the 10 quarterbacks in 10 years category, then, you know, I think we might have to revise that list. But um, all right. Well, hey, let's leave it up to the viewers in the comments section. Let us know. How do you see this Jonathan Taylor situation shaking out? Like to hear your thoughts. Leave a like on the video. Subscribe to the channel. Follow us on our social medias. From Juju and Kyle, stay safe, happy, and healthy. We will see you next time. It wouldn't be an NFL offseason if the Dallas Cowboys weren't at the top of most headlines. Certainly their quarterback is always going to be one that steals the show. Dak Prescott, earlier this year, he made a proclamation that he would not have more than 10 interceptions this coming year. So far in training camp, last check, he's already thrown multiple interceptions. Uh, two, three, I believe, as of this recording. So it's not off to a great start. I mean, the Dallas defense is good. They're certainly going to challenge people this year. But and they'll challenge their own quarterback in practice. But um, for a guy that made a again definitive proclamation, I will not throw double digit interceptions this year. To have multiple interceptions in training camp is not a good look. What do you think of Dak this coming season, Kyle? Do you think that he's going to bounce back, be a Pro Bowl level quarterback again, or do you think last year is kind of a sign of things to come? It's interesting because Dak last year, if I remember correctly, he had a whole bunch of interceptions, but remember he broke his hand at the start of the season. And so he only played in 12 games. He had a 91.1 passer rating, which was about a league average quarterback. But the Dallas Cowboys were one of the three best teams in the NFC or like one of the three good teams in the NFC last year because the NFC was just terrible outside of San Francisco, Philadelphia and Dallas. I don't know exactly how to weigh the good or the bad with Dak Prescott, but I know some people really started feeling the Cooper Rush fever for a few weeks until the last game before Dak came back when Cooper Rush got benched for whoever was their third string quarterback because he was just so awful. I The Cowboys don't have a better option in the tank, but I think the reason this conversation is coming up is one, like you said, it's the Dallas Cowboys and two, this is actually the first time the Cowboys can actually make a change at the quarterback position. Like the last two years, people have been like, is Dak the long-term guy with the Cowboys? Because people kind of think of Dak like a little bit above that QB purgatory tier of quarterbacks like Derek Carr. But I mean, you're lower on Dak Prescott than I am, but still like he was a league average quarterback last year. And anytime you have a league average quarterback, you're going to have the questions about what his future is going to be like with that team. This is the first year they can actually move off of him. So they do have an option to upgrade or just move on from Dak Prescott at the end of the season this year. And depending on how they want to spread out the money, they could potentially save a whole bunch of it against the salary cap if they 
they split it over two years instead of just taking the $60 million cap hit at the end of this year. So the Cowboys are kind of in that in-between space. And uh, this is the first time that those conversations actually hold some merit because if Dak Prescott plays another league average season or below average season, there's going to be some people clamoring for uh, Dak Prescott to move on just like Ezekiel Elliott and Amari Cooper and Jalen Smith and all of the Cowboys that used to be the stars of the team before they pivoted to (laughs) Micah Parsons and CeeDee Lamb and all the new guys. Yeah. So you mentioned the injury last year. So yeah, Dak Prescott only played 13 games. But in those 13 games, he had 17 interceptions. He was a turnover machine. And, you know, that's not even counting like fumbles and everything in the in the playoff game too. not even counted into his total like interception line for the year. In the playoff game, he has multiple interceptions against the 49ers. You can forgive Dak Prescott's shortcomings when he's not turning the ball over. But if he starts turning into a turnover machine, that's when it becomes an issue. Because this goes back to the conversation when Dak first initially got his big contract. How much of a multiplier is Dak Prescott to the talent around him? Is it the talent around him that is propping him up? And now that we're at this point, too, where the Dallas Cowboys can no longer hang their hat on having the best offensive line in football. In fact, right now, they're currently dealing with a holdout situation with Zach Martin. Now that that's gone, now that the talent at the wide receiving position has changed for them, now that Ezekiel Elliott isn't in that backfield being the all pro level top five leading rusher in the league. A lot more pressure is put on Dak Prescott to be that guy that props up the offense. And if we're going to have the conversations about guys like Kirk Cousins, Jimmy Garoppolo, Derek Carr, again, all of these guys who we kind of like see in a similar tier, then it's only fair to have the conversation about Dak, you know, because Dak also is getting paid significantly more than any of those guys, or at least at certain times, depending on when you check out the contracts was getting paid more than a lot of those guys. You know, when he got first initially paid, he certainly was. So here's where it kind of differs with Dak Prescott. And I've always for years dismissed the people who say, look at Dak Prescott's raw numbers. Look at the 10 interception season in 2018, or look at the interceptions that he, uh, 13 in 2017, 11 in 2019. Like I've always dismissed the people who talk about that because The Kellen Moore offense was always Dak Prescott throwing 45 passes a game. Like that's the offense they wanted to run was run as many plays as possible. And we're just going to throw the ball all over the yard. I'm looking up the numbers here. Dak Prescott had 500 passing attempts in 2017. He had 526 in Kellen Moore's first season as offensive coordinator, 596 in 2019. Then he broke his leg, but he was on pace to throw over 600 passes that season. Remember the joke about Dak Prescott was like the league's leading passer in yards three weeks after he broke his leg that season because they were just throwing the ball so much. Uh, In 2021, 596 passing attempts for Dak Prescott. So he's throwing the ball more often. That's why he's going to have more interceptions. It's just the probabilities. In terms of interceptions per pass attempt, Dak Prescott's actually one of the lower-ranked quarterbacks in the NFL. And same kind of goes for last year. But last year's where it starts to change because he only threw the ball 400 times and had 17 interceptions. And... Kellen Moore is no longer the offensive coordinator of the Dallas Cowboys. 
It's Brian Schottenheimer. For those who don't remember who Brian Schottenheimer is, he's the guy who, one, has been fired from like three different offensive coordinator jobs, but two, he's the person who was the anti-let-Russ-Cook offensive coordinator. They let Russ cook. He couldn't do anything in the offense that one year, and then they replaced him with Brian Schottenheimer because Pete Carroll said, you don't get to cook anymore. We're going to get Brian Schottenheimer, the most boring offensive coordinator you can possibly find. So Brian Schottenheimer is the new coordinator, not Kellen Moore. They're probably not going to throw the ball all over the yard as much as possible, which, hey, I wouldn't have hired Brian Schottenheimer, but good luck to you, Jerry Jones, for making the call. (laughs) And if that's the offense they're going to run, Dak's numbers are going to look a little closer to other quarterbacks around the league. And because their offense isn't going to be so exceptional, you're going to get a little bit more of a representative sample size on Dak Prescott this year. Now, I guess I could give Dak a little bit of grace. In last year, they did lose Amari Cooper. So you subtract Amari Cooper and his route running from the offense, and you insert Michael Gallup, who was coming off injury. Gosh, who who was the other guy that came in for just a few weeks, caught a bunch of touchdowns? Noah Brown, I want to say. You insert lesser talent at that secondary receiving positions. Dalton Schultz was probably their best secondary pass catcher aside from C.D. Lamb. This year, they do bring in Brandon Cooks, and I've always said about Brandon Cooks that I think he's the most underrated wide receiver in the league. You just look at his box scores, it's 1,000-yard season, 1,000-yard season, 1,000-yard season. He's even more underrated than Mike Evans like in terms of ability. I think two people unfairly judge him because he's had injuries at unfortunate times in his career, particularly when he got knocked out in the Super Bowl. But Brandon Cooks has been one of the better wide receivers Over the last 10-year stretch, I think also what diminishes his value is how often he gets moved off teams. But the guy's been a great wide receiver under Drew Brees. He's played with Tom Brady. He's has some cachet in the league and will bring... I think he had a 1,500-yard season with Jared Goff, too. Yeah, he'll bring some added value to the pass-catching unit for the Cowboys. Now, they did also lose Dalton Schultz, too, so they did lose some talent at that position. And... A lot of pressure is going to be on Tony Pollard, too. Franchise tag year. We've talked about it. Pollard's going to play on that franchise tag. But now that Zeke is gone, he's the main guy. <laughs> he's he's the top guy in that backfield, too. You know, all that kind of plays into what Dak Prescott will do this coming season. Will the numbers look as bad as they did last year? No. he. I don't think he'll throw a league-leading 17 interceptions like last year. But if you told me he had double-digit interceptions against his creed, I would say I could see it just because it does seem like he's been more willing to force the issue. I think he is a, like, for the Cowboys to really succeed, especially with the defense they have, less is probably more for them. Like, you mentioned how many pass attempts he had under Callan Moore, right? If they cut that in half, I don't think that would be an issue because their defense is really good. If you just well, take advantage I don't of they... that defense keeping the ball on the ground, ball control offense. You mentioned limited pass attempts deep down the field. They could win a lot of games just doing that. They don't have to play outside of themselves. Again, I think part of the issue and why people unfairly judge Dak Prescott at times is you kind of want a guy that's getting paid as much as Dak Prescott to be more than that. But that might be the best situation for the Cowboys to be the best version of themselves. I don't think cutting it in half is the best situation because that would be like 22 pass attempts a game and then you're just game managing Dak Prescott. But but at the same time, 22 pass attempts a game, that actually might not be terrible. (laughs) 
But then you're just game managing Dak Prescott. And I think Dak Prescott is still so much more of a quarterback than a game manager at this stage of his career. But at least last year wouldn't be an indication of that. Now, he can change that. You know, he he can prove me wrong here, but I would say that he's kind of about that tier. You can win a lot of games within that tier. It just you you do want to see that he does have that ability that if the Cowboys back against the wall need him to be more that he can. I don't know if he still can, but that's up for Dak Prescott to answer for me this coming season. If the Cowboys are going to replicate the offensive production they had last year, which understandably was worse than it was in previous years, but because they they were like 12th in the league in offense last year, but their defense was top five, and that's how they ended up being uh, 11 and five or 12 and five and beat the shit out of Tampa Bay in that playoff game last year. If the Cowboys are going to replicate that offensive production, then you're going to want to draft CeeDee Lamb on your fantasy teams because CeeDee Lamb is going to become a top five wide receiver this year in that offense. If the Cowboys are going to replicate the offensive production they had last year, and if Dak is going to play like an above average quarterback, it's going to be because some of those passes that would have been incompletions to say Noah Brown or bobbled passes that end up turning into interceptions, those passes are going to CD Lamb, and CD Lamb is going to be able to beat the double press coverages and the one-on-ones with the best corners in the NFL. This is going to be a breakout breakout season for CD lamb. And I'm not saying like CD lamb hasn't been great this year. I'm saying like him and Justin Jefferson as the two leading receivers in the NFL, that's what's going to have to happen. If the Cowboys are even going to be a top 10 offense this year, because the rest of that offense is not very good. I know they have Brandon cooks. I know they have Michael Gallup. It's going to have to be CD lamb and the C.D. Lamb show on that offense this year because he's their best player on offense. Again, what I think Brandon Cooks brings to the offense, though, you look at, again, the interceptions in the playoff game, I'll go back to against San Francisco. Yeah, and Michael Gallup literally quit on a route. I don't think Brandon Cooks is going to do that. So that will be a game changer in itself. Yes, but when Brandon Cooks inevitably misses his five games a season due to injury, his replacement as the number four receiver is someone named Simi Fahoko who I am just learning about right now as the number four receiver for the Dallas Cowboys. So it is a thin receiver room. And I don't think of Brandon Cooks and my, I mean, Brandon Cooks has been wasting away in Houston the last couple of years, but I don't think of Brandon Cooks as this like upper echelon player who has to replace the production of Dalton Schultz, which for people who don't know how good Dalton Schultz was last year, Dalton Schultz for the Cowboys was basically Mark Andrews on the Ravens. Okay, like I his w- production in the receiving game was great. I will push back though on Brandon Cooks missing five games a season 2021 (laughs) 16 games played 2022 he played 13 but we know that there was some extra stuff going on there in Houston 2020 15 games played 2019 14 games played 2018 16 games 2017 16 games 2016 16 games 2015 16 games and 2014 his rookie year 10 games so, oh, the yeah, no, I concerns on Brandon Cooks are so overblown. It's just, again, unfortunate times that he's experiences injuries. It's kind of like Marcus Mariota. People think he's one of the most injury prone quarterbacks in the league. But if you really look, it's just he got hurt in like pivotal games, unfortunately, for them. 
Marcus Mariota, the joke is always questionable to return with Mariota. He started the game, whether he finished was always a question, but I didn't mean that in like the Brandon Cooks sense. I know Brandon Cooks has been relatively healthy. I just meant you can bet on any NFL receiver to miss four games in a season. Like say it's Michael Gallup who missed games with injuries last year. Every NFL receiver could miss four games in a season. I would say technically it's a bad bet (laughs) given that technically he maybe misses one. But Most besides years. the point, like, the, yeah, the Brandon Cooks is a fine receiver. Fair enough. He's a number two receiver. They're going to ask him to replicate the production lost by Dalton Schultz. They are going to succeed because of CeeDee Lamb and the CeeDee Lamb show. And by the way, we started to see that in the playoff game last year when Z, uh, Tony Pollard got hurt in the playoff game last year against the 49ers. And when Tony Pollard went out, it became... We run the offense through CeeDee Lamb. We go as far as CeeDee Lamb takes us. And I think the final score of that game was like 17 to 13 or something like that. Like the Cowboys just could not do anything against, granted, the best defense in the NFL, but they just couldn't really do anything in the playoff game on offense when it became the CeeDee Lamb show. So if they're going to replicate production this year, it's going to be on the backs of their best player. And their best player is supposed to be CeeDee Lamb. I think most seems to say their best player is supposed to be their quarterback in Dak Prescott, which, you know, ultimately is coming back to it. The playoff game is the biggest indictment on Dak going into the season. Can he be better than what he was against the 49ers? Now, you would say, oh, he showed out against the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. But also, we looked at that Tampa team from last year and thought, do they really belong here in that playoff game? You know, the Cowboys... Like you said, they they were within one score most of the game. The biggest problem is just drive-killing interceptions. Dak just needs to correct that part of his game. He can't be a turnover machine. If he's a game manager, I think that that's personally fine. I think that's the sweet spot for the Cowboys this year. The benefit of having a top five defense is you get more leeway on offense. Whereas years ago, before Micah Parsons, the Cowboys had these top five offenses that were putting up crazy amounts of points and they were going eight and eight because they couldn't stop anyone to save their life. So that's the benefit of having a top defense is you have more leeway to work with on offense. And I wasn't like, I think Dak Prescott is in the same tier of quarterback as Jalen Hurts right now. Now, if Jalen Hurts has another breakout season, I think he jumps up into that tier too. But I think Dak Prescott is a tier three quarterback. He's like in that like eight to 12 range of quarterbacks. And that's how good I think CeeDee Lamb is going to be. Can I just say I think he's closer to 12 than he is to eight? Fair enough. Like I said, it's semantics between the tier of, you know, that group of eight to 11 or eight to 12. It's like pick your favorites between that group. But the broader point I was saying is like, I believe Dak Prescott is still that above average quarterback. And I think CeeDee Lamb is going to, I think CeeDee Lamb is better at what he does than Dak Prescott will be at what he does because the Cowboys, if they are going to be a top 10 offense this year, CeeDee Lamb is going to be top five in the league in receiving yards. And that is what they need in terms of production. And He's their number one receiver with a smoking gun. I'm not going to say it's going to look like the Justin Jefferson offense with Minnesota because Minnesota is going to throw the ball 50 times a game and Justin Jefferson's the only receiver that they got. And Justin Jefferson is just a better receiver than CeeDee Lamb. But CeeDee Lamb is like right there in terms of best young receivers in the NFL. And he could be this season, say, their Jamar Chase. And him putting up 1,500 yards is actually in the realm of possibility. And if that happens... 
Cowboys are going to be just fine on offense. Does it mean they're going to win a Super Bowl? No, but I don't think there's really anything the Cowboys can do to win a Super Bowl other than the Eagles getting hurt and the 49ers getting hurt and good fortune going their way in a playoff game. So Dak is... I don't think he's going to be game managed like you're talking about, but I do think he's going to be that it's going to be a slower offense. It's going to be more methodical with running. It's going to be more screen passes and more short term and yeah. short field plays like you're talking about. I don't know if you want to call that reigning in Dak Prescott, but it's just the offensive philosophy they've chosen. They moved on from Kellen Moore and chose bland ass Brian Schottenheimer. So this is the call that they're making on the offensive side of the ball. I would say probably the nightmare situation is for the Chargers offense to look amazing this year and for the Cowboys to regress and potentially miss the playoffs. I think, you know, Mike McCarthy is certainly more on the hot seat than Dak Prescott is, if anything. Even if, let's say, this is a disaster season, Cowboys miss the playoffs, Dak's fine one more year potentially. I think Mike McCarthy is going to be the one that gets the inevitable axe, and then it's going to fall on Dak Prescott. Yes, and can I just put out here, it is uh, July 30th at the time we're recording this. Let me just put this out here so that I can be ahead of it. I think it was a mistake to fire Kellen Moore, okay? (laughs) I think it was a mistake for the Cowboys to move on from Kellen Moore and specifically to hire Brian Schottenheimer, okay? They're moving with the trend of the NFL. Last year, for those who don't know, offense was down to its second lowest levels since 2000 in the NFL last year, and it wasn't a byproduct of oh, teams are running the ball more or, you know, offense is down because defenses have improved. Teams were just running less plays. Like the adjustment of Kansas City and Buffalo and Cincinnati having these incredible offenses that just score points like nobody's business. The correction the rest of the league made is play two high safeties because that slowed down Mahomes in 2021. And on offense, just run less plays. If we run fewer plays, it's less opportunity for these star quarterbacks to just beat the crap out of us every time we play. So if the league is zigging to slowing down offense and running less plays, the Cowboys are zigging right along with them because they are going to Brian Schottenheimer as their offensive coordinator, which again, I think is a mistake. I don't agree with what the Cowboys are doing on the offensive side of the ball. At the same time, They have made their bed. They're going to sleep in it. And if Dak Prescott or Mike McCarthy are going to be the fall guys for what ends up happening this season with the Cowboys, which could be a disaster on offense, that's just the decision they've made and they're going to live with the consequences and Mike McCarthy probably gets fired. However, I do think it would be weird if Dak Prescott has an awful, awful season and people don't, I mean, again, we'll have to see what happens, but people don't point to the new offensive coordinator, the Mike McCarthy thing, the losing Dalton Schultz and perhaps injuries or something like that. I'm, I know I'm already preemptively making excuses for Dak Prescott, but I'm just saying if it ends up being a bad year for the Cowboys offense and they underachieve, I don't think Dak Prescott's the person I'm pointing the finger at first. There's a lot of extenuating circumstances around the Cowboys that I think would be more likely to be the cause of fault than Dak Prescott. Well, if there is any coaching errors, I certainly hope that Sean Payton will be the one to point him out for us. But (laughs) anyway, guys, uh, let us know below in the comments section what you think of this upcoming Cowboys season. Do you think this is a make or break season for Dak Prescott? We'd like to hear your thoughts. Leave a like on the video, subscribe to the channel, follow us on all our social medias. From Juju and Kyle, stay safe, happy, and healthy. We'll see you next time.
Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.